Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 573. Gone for the first time in days. It was only then that Tempe briefly caught my eye. His thumb and forefinger rubbed together gently. Gladness? No. Satisfaction. Realization dawned on me as I met his eyes again. His expression was blank as always. Studiously blank. So blank it was almost smug. Can we get back to your story, love? Dayton asked Haspy. I'd like to know how this boy gets the moon into bed. Hespy smiled at him, the first honest smile I'd seen her give, Dayton, in a handful of days. I've lost my place, she said. There's a rhythm to it, like a song. I can tell it from the beginning, but if I start halfway through, I'll get it all tangled up in my head. Will you start over tomorrow if I promise to keep my mouth shut? I will, she agreed, if you promise. And that's the page and the chapter. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Nick. You see, Jeremy, you jackass. <laughs> you gonna follow that up with something there, Nick? <laughs> I was I was gonna do a bit where like I was I was gonna pretend like Jeremy had had disagreed with me on the previous pages about about Tempe uh, doing this intentionally. But uh, just the the thought of me calling Jeremy a jackass was just too gleeful, and I, I couldn't muster the rest of the bit. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, this he did it intentionally. He's he's uh, quite astute, actually, mm-hmm. and he's sharing the little joke with with Quoth. It's sort of like the joy of being the only two people in a room who speak a language, and you can openly talk shit about other people in the room, and they can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Or at least what I imagine is a joy, since I am a uh, monolingual. Uh, personage and therefore worthy of scorn well like, i feel like a similar thing is like um jeff and i do this all the time when like we're in a room full of people we do like face communication like i guess we've just been living together too long or something but like if we're in a room like we can give each other a look and essentially know what what is happening so like we can have those conversations about people sort of without without actually saying the words it's like looking at someone and rolling your eyes, but a little more complicated. Yeah, well, you that's that's a, a common version, but I have to imagine that with your with someone who you are so intimately familiar, there are subtler variations that one can do. Yeah. But um, like it does it feels like that. Like what they're describing in the book here between Tempe and Quoth feels like that little that little like mini communication like thing. Definitely. They've established a rapport and they also, they literally have established like a, a language of hand signals or at least like Quoth now understands enough of like this, this wouldn't fly in, in ADEM, right? Like in the Demra. Everyone else would all be able see. to see what they were signaling to each other. Yes. Yeah. So this is kind of a fun and maybe like potentially this is one of the reasons <laughs> potentially the way that I pronounce that word. Um, potentially this is one of the reasons that the Edemic language evolved in the way it is because they're so insular it it was like their secret language i mean i i have some theories about why adem is the way it is not the least of which because uh, i suspect that they understand on some level the danger in in story and song Uh, and i also firmly believe that they are a splinter group of the ra where the edema i think we've talked about this before on the podcast the edema embraced 
performance and openness and the uh, Ademra uh, made it taboo. Uh, anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about something else. I mean, we're here to talk about all facets of the book. Uh, it This little moment also might communicate to us something about Tempe's character and something that he and Quoth have in common, a common ground for friendship between them, which is that they both enjoy, on some level, being able to share a secret like this that is also partially them like getting one over on on someone else or like manipulating or tricking another person to like get the outcome that they want and i think in this instance like you know it is at worst harmless if not actually beneficial because tempe effectively diffuses what could turn into an a nasty argument that damages the group's uh, cohesion and effectiveness uh but it is manipulative what he's doing it's the good kind, though. It's like a, it's like a white lie. It's a white manipulation. Exactly. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you do when you're trying to keep your friends from arguing. Exactly. You, you apply the pressure. Something that I have never done. No. Uh, <laughs> you, you apply the pressure in the way you understand. And then, uh, on the bottom half of this short page, Hespi confirms something that you put forward on a previous episode, Nick. That. She knows the story by rote, and if she loses her place, she she like can't really go on with it. She can't just like pick up where she left off. She has to like figure out where she was and find it again. And that uh, some might disagree, but I find that verisimilitudinous because that's how I learned lines, mm-hmm. um, especially monologues when I was a performer. At least for me, like I, I never learned every single line to the point where I could just like start. Oftentimes, there's something in the script that gives you a clue what the next line is, or there's something in the, the moment. And like, that's what rehearsal does. Um, but this is how I would have performed a monologue way back in the day is I would have had to start over. It's very hard to pick it up from the beginning. I'd have to start from the beginning and because each, each step of it leads into the next one. Mm-hmm. Something I, I, from my own very, very brief uh, amateurish time on the stage, I second that emotion. It's much easier, I think, to fake your way through or to pick up uh, a scene if you have, like, someone else to bounce off of who, like, knows where they are. Either you go, oh, right, my next line is this because they said that, or they can, like, prompt you, like, weren't you going to say something about, you know, that's a bad example, but you know what I mean? Like, someone can help you. But if you're just, like, giving a soliloquy and you're all alone, uh, it's much harder because you just have to remember what is the sense of what I'm saying what logically comes next. Something that my dad apparently did as like, you know, an emergency, like, you know, parachute last resort, if he was doing Shakespeare is he would, if he like lost his place in the middle of a long speech, he would just sub in another speech that he knew better and hope that the audience wouldn't know the difference until he remembered what he was supposed to say next. Wow. (laughs) Because he's like, I know this one monologue from Much Ado, but nothing like the back of my hand. So if I absolutely have to, and I dry on stage, I can just sub in those 12 lines while I try to think of what my actual next line is. I guess better to have the wrong lines than no lines at all. Especially in Shakespeare, when like, let's be honest, not everybody in the audience is like following you from line to line and understanding everything you're saying when you do Shakespeare. An, audi- an audience always can tell, like, if there's, like, an awkward silence on stage, the longer it drags on, the more the audience goes, like, something is wrong here. <laughs> yeah. Well, funny thing about, yeah. I feel like Shakespeare is a good example of sort of uh, 
stories like the one that Hespi is telling that like they have a certain sound, but I guess, I guess it's hard. Eh. I was going to say, but like when you know them, you know them as long as like when you know them, you know the like a whole bunch of it as long as you get the right start. Like it's like, um, it's like a riding a bicycle style. So for example, like let's say she hadn't told this story for a really, really, really long time. But like someone started to say it, she would probably be able to tell the rest of it because like yeah, she, because she like, you like, just sort of know it. Prompt. Like yeah. I was like, that happened to me the other day. Someone started like the Hamlet like thing. And I don't know all of that thing. I only know like the first paragraph because that was my job to read it in like grade 10. And they started with like two words and I finished the first two lines after them. And I was like, whoa, I haven't read that since grade 10. And it's still in my brain. Well, this is also (laughs) a good example of something we talked about earlier in that Hespi's story and her reciting of it has a kind of music to it. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about how like that makes it easier to remember. And Shakespeare is a prime example of this. Shakespeare sticks in your head because it often rhymes and it's always in blank verse. Right. So it always go. It's always an iambic pentameter. Uh, and, you know, it, it often has rhymes. So like that's another way where when you're doing Shakespeare, it's sometimes easier to like to remember the lines because you literally go, OK, my next line rhymes with my last line. Right. Yeah. Although I feel like the, the Jack story doesn't rhyme. So it like doesn't it's more. It's more difficult than something like iambic pentameter. Right. But it does, as we pointed out, have other rhetorical and musical devices in it. But you're right mm-hmm. that it's not it's not poetry in the way that Shakespeare is. Yeah. And uh, this was Page of the Wind talks about poetry. Are we done with notes for the page? I have mine, but. Go for it. I think so. It is the end of a chapter. This chapter was called The Broken Road, obviously referring to The Broken Road uh, with the broken house at the end of it with Jax at the end of it because it's the thing for the story. Ta-da! See, I thought of that was about like a song. What? You know, like, I walk a broken road. <laughs> I have like ever that. known. <laughs> oh, that's very funny. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> it's folks, it's a banger. People ragged on Green Day all the time, but like that song is a banger. It's a bop. Okay, I'm going to when we're when we're done for the day, I'm going to look up the lyrics to that song and see if I can change them enough to make them fit the Jack story and we're going to we're going to play a game with that later maybe. And then Jordan's <laughs> going to sing it on the air. Maybe. Honestly, I I would oh. for for maybe. I would consider it. If we can if we can figure out the lyrics, I might do it. <laughs> oh, that's the most commitment we've ever got out of you to sing a song since your uh stank and dope party. Yeah, I was going to say that's I I uh, you should have seen me the other night I sang a Sailor Moon song out loud in front of a very small group of people. <laughs> that we're not at a bar <laughs> or anything, but still, it was like karaoke. It was it was just different. <laughs> I would have paid good money. Uh, if we have no other notes on the chapter title, I'm ready for a letter. Me too. Oh, then let's read a letter. Now, normally we read the letters in more or less the order that we get them, but this one is extremely timely. This is from Madeline, who writes on Jax's story slash Rothfuss's blog post. Hi, pagers. Listening to the beginning of Hespi's story about Jax and the Tinker and the Moon, 
I was struck by the fact that Patrick Rothfuss drew heavily from it in his blog post of December 9th, 2020, before he read the prologue to book three. There are several parallels. He describes the tinker as fond of wagers in the Jack's story and describes himself as loving wagers in the blog post. He describes Jack's as an unlucky boy, <coughs> luckless, and describes himself as being very lucky in the blog post. In both, he describes a demon surrounded by or followed by shadow or something similar. To me, this seems like strong commentary on how Rothfuss was feeling about releasing the prologue, considering the eventual consequences of the Jax slash Tinker wager. Hmm. <laughs> much to think on! <laughs> you seem very suspicious, Jordana. You seem very suspicious. We hmmed at the same time, sir. Yeah, your hmm was more suspicious than mine. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I wouldn't put it past Rothfuss to, like, take some inspo from his book in structuring something. And I'm sure he's a guy who appreciates uh, that kind of of mirroring, echoing. It's like poetry. It rhymes. I really like the call out uh, that Jack is luckless. And I do think there is some kind of through line between, like, we know that it seems like bloodlines are important and it seems like, uh, like, like things are sins of the father and time loops and whatnot. And anyway, I, the idea that Jax is the first lackless is really interesting. Also, that's something else I wanted to mm. just mention on this show that, and like that might explain or, or contribute to explaining why they have a box. That's like magical. Yes. Well, as our co-host said, much to think on. And we'll think on it on tomorrow's page. Uh, The...